Uh, my name is Jonathan. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting, I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Pillar Jacksonville. Uh, we want to thank you for being here this morning. Uh, as you see on the screen, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn there. We're going to look at the whole chapter. If you don't have your own copy, there should be a Bible somewhere around you in, in one of the little shelves underneath the seat. If you don't have one at home, feel free to take that. That is our gift to you. Um, we're going to look at this continued process that we've been walking through. We've been in Hebrews for, for quite a while now. It's been a, a glorious book to walk through and read, so I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as I am. Um, so if you've seen my car out there, it's a 2000 Pontiac Torrent. Um, you know, nothing special, but around 2012, uh, I had a leak in my car. And after heavy rains, there would be this massive puddle in the passenger's floorboard. I'm talking about not like a little dab. I mean, this, it was thick, and, and it was a very big amount of water. So every time I would clean it out, I'd go to the vacuum cleaner and suck it up and get it dry so it wouldn't you know, have any issues with that. And this, this happened over and over and over again. And I couldn't figure out why this was happening. I have a sunroof. It wasn't that. I put extra tape, and it wasn't that. This process kept happening. I would squeegee it out. I would do all these things. I knew it was going to happen when heavy rains came. I would even park on angles and different things like that to figure out what is going on with this particular thing. And so eventually, in 2018, one of my friends actually helped me figure out what was wrong. It was actually this tube on the side of the, the car that was disconnected, and that was why the water was getting into it. So once we repaired that, it never happened again, and I haven't had to deal with that issue. So when we think about that, right, that's kind of a, a random illustration, but I think it, it ties into what we're going to talk a little bit today. The people of Israel, right, we've been talking about them through this journey through Hebrews, faced a similar situation. No, they didn't have a leak on their camel or something like that, but they did have to continually go before God to offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. The high priest went every time on the Day of Atonement to offer blood for the sins of people. But the next year, he would do the same thing, and the next year, the same thing, and the next year, and so on and so forth. There was never an end of sight. It was never fully satisfied. They needed a better solution. They needed someone else. They needed Jesus, the great Redeemer. So as we look at this passage today, right, we've been, we've been thinking about this concept, right, of Jesus is greater, right? We just sang that, Jesus is better. And we're going to continue to see that today. And one of the things I want us to focus on in this particular passage in chapter 9 is this. Kind of the main idea of this particular passage is that Jesus served as the great high priest and secured eternal redemption by shedding his own blood. And that, that's a beautiful thing for us. And how does that affect us? Well, it, it, the same is true for us today, that Jesus is the great high priest who secured eternal redemption for his own people by shedding his own blood. So it doesn't change for us and even the Hebrews. But before we dive into this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and open up your word. We pray that as we dive into this particular passage, that you would remind us of the beauty of your redemption. Lord, that we do not deserve a Savior because we are sinners, but you sent Jesus on earth our behalf, to die on the cross so that we may have redemption, an eternal redemption. So God, I pray that as we, we read this passage, that as the psalmist prayed, that you would open our eyes so that we may behold wonderful things from your law. 
We thank you, we praise you, in your name we pray, amen. So as we get into this passage, we're going to notice three beautiful truths actually about the new covenant. So notice with me first that Jesus' work is greater than the work of the tabernacle. Jesus' work is greater than the work of the tabernacle. So we're going to kind of work through the passage as we go along. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 to begin with. So follow along with me. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. All right, so we see here this, this kind of fault that he continues from chapter 8. He's already been talking about the new covenant. And in this chapter, he opens up by looking at the regulations of worship found in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Exodus 25, 8 and 9, we see this, this establishment of the tabernacle or the tent, as you'll sometimes hear it called. Listen to what Exodus says. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture show you shall make. That's God talking to Moses. And if we were to go and have the time, we could look from Exodus 25 for pretty much the rest of the book of all the different information about the pieces of the tabernacle that we even see here in chapter or verses 3 through 5. And for the sake of time, we're not going to go through each one of those. Like We'll just use what he says in verse 5 of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Okay, So go and read on your own about those specifics if you want more. But I do want to point out this verse 3. It says, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Sometimes you'll hear it called the holy of holies. So this was the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Well, where does that come from? Exodus 26, 33. You shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate the holy place from the most holy. We're going to look at a lot of the Old Testament today, so just hold on, all right? So all of this right here was prescribed to Moses from God, right? He's telling him all the things that he needs to do in order to set up the temple or the tabernacle, excuse me. It was very intentional. It was very regulated. There was exact measurements. There was exact things that he wanted him to use. Even in the temple when Solomon built it, there was this 
attention to the detail of regulations of worship. Listen to what uh, it was written in 1 Kings 8, 6-7. through The priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. So again, very detailed. God had a purpose and he had a plan in the way that he wanted the people of Israel to worship him. So my question here for us is, why does the author of Hebrews, right? We don't know necessarily who that was, but why does he take the first five verses of chapter 9 to talk about the tabernacle and all the furnishings? Well, I think one simple way to sum it up is the way Albert Moeller sums it up. He says, the tent reflected the holiness of God. It communicated his transcendence, his perfection and righteousness. It's also a vibrant reminder of the covenant that God made with the Israel at Sinai. So at the end of the day, this is all about the worship of God, right? That's what God was doing with the people of Israel when he gave them the tabernacle, right? It was a place for him to dwell with them as they were in the wilderness, as they were walking through. So this author here shows how this plays out in verses 6 through 10. And in verses 6, we see, says, the preparations having thus began, the, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So we kind of see the inner workings of the priesthood here, right? We see that they have this daily routine that they were called to follow. Leviticus 24 gives us some insight into one of those duties. It's kind of regarding the, the show uh, you see in verse Four there, or excuse me, verse 2, the lamp and the table and the bread of the presence. This is what it says in Leviticus. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. So this was their daily routine. This was something they did every single day. They went in and did these things. But look at verse 7. We see a shift, right? We see something different that the high priest must do. And it's only on one day of the year. The high priest was able to enter in behind the veil on the Day of Atonement. What's the Day of Atonement? Glad you asked. So, hold your spot in Hebrews. We're going to turn over to the book of Leviticus. So, Old Testament, third book of the Bible. So, go all the way Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 16, because I really want you to hear the premise of what's happening on the Day of Atonement. The whole chapter of Leviticus chapter 16 is devoted to the Day of Atonement. It may even say that at the top of your Bible in that particular passage. So let's go down to verse 29, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter, because I really want you to understand the significance of this day. It says in Leviticus 16, Starting at verse 29, it shall be a statue to you that forever in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statue forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statue forever 
for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So we see from the book of Leviticus what this day of atonement is. We're going to be back in Hebrews now. So we see that this is an important day, right? The sacrificial system that was established in the Old Testament revolved and culminated every year around this day, the day of atonement, right? This is where the high priest would go before the Lord as a mediator for the sins of the people. Listen to what Exodus chapter 30, verse 10 writes, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. It wasn't some good idea that Moses or Aaron came up with. It was an idea from the Lord. It was an act of worship. It was holy to the Lord. And look at what it says here in verse 7. It says, He goes in once a year, not without taking blood, which we'll get to, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. So what, what are these unintentional sins? So in this process, if we had time to go back to Leviticus and Exodus again, you would see that the high priest would first go in on behalf of himself. He would make sure his sins were covered, and then he would go out and return back in. So we see that about himself. But what are these unintentional sins? Well, these are simply the sins that we actually don't realize that we're even doing, right? We know the sins of omission or commission, right? Where, hey, you know, do not lie, and you go and lie. That's the sin of commission. There's also the sins of omission, right? Where, oh, wait a minute, God tells us to share our faith, and we didn't share our faith, right? So we neglect to do what we're told. And then sometimes there's things that we, hey, we, we didn't realize that they were a sin. Well, you ask, that's not me just making it up. Listen to what Numbers chapter 15, verse 25 says. This is coming from the New American Standard. It says, Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they will be forgiven, for it was an unintentional wrong. And they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord, for their unintentional wrong. So even the Bible describes this, right? We see it in Hebrews. Looking at verse 8. Right? We see that the Holy Spirit is, is pointing out something here. Right? So the author of Hebrews wants to make sure, hey, take notice. The Holy Spirit is pointing that out. And we see that the author points to this idea that there's this separation. Right? Uh, the sacrifices made daily and on the Day of Atonement were, were still not enough. The veil was blocking everyone off from the presence of God. And even the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one day out of the year. Listen to the way one theologian describes this. He says, As long as there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, the people were not fully in the presence of God. They could not draw near to God with confidence. Thus the veil between the most holy place and the holy place indicated incompleteness and an inability to approach God. That's a scary place to be on our own. So the only way to get close to God had to come through another way. Look at verse 9. It may be in parentheses, a parathetical there. It says, which is symbolic for the present age. Well, What the, the writer of Hebrews is getting at is that the tent here in the Old Testament was a symbol of something greater, something that was to come and provide a way to God. 
And we see what the, the writer says here. He says, because of this arrangement, the people of Israel can never have a perfect conscience. Again, our theologian friend helps us here. He says, the author of Hebrews shows that not even the highest of all sacrifices, the sacrifice made by the high priest on the day of atonement in the most holy place, could cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. He continues saying, even if it could even it couldn't bring about newness of life. This is why gifts and sacrifices continue to be offered in Israel. They had to be offered because there was never final purification from sin. He finishes, as soon as an Israelite finished offering one sacrifice for sin, he needed to offer another. So you see, this was a constant thing for them. It was never enough. They had to do it again the next year, the next year, the next year. Right? This was the job of the high priest. He was the one that was called on to offer sacrifices on behalf of Israel. Hebrews 5, 1 through 3 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And as verse 10 shows us here, right, these sacrifices really dealt with food and drink and the various washings. They had nothing, they did nothing to fully satisfy the penalty of sin. And even here he ends in verse 10, he's saying, until the time of reformation. And ultimately this is truly referring to the time when God would bring about full Redemption, which we're going to see here in a moment. So the high priest was obedient to the right. He, he did the things that he was called to do. And he did this year after year after year. And the law, what we can learn from this, is that the law can never make it perfect. The writer of Hebrews told us in chapter 7, verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the question is, how does this connect to Jesus? Well, we know from Hebrews 4 and following, right, that Jesus is the great high priest, right? He was greater, he was better than any high priest that came before him. And, and so that leads to us knowing that Jesus' work on the, cry, the cross was opening the door for the work of the tabernacle to be complete, right? As we will see in this next section, Jesus was the Jesus' way was the Holy Spirit was pointing to the tabernacle. What he was using, Jesus saying, hey, the tabernacle is pointing to something better, something that will finally fill the sacrifice that was needed. So no longer would the sacrifices of the high priest fall short of cleansing man's conscience. So Jesus would complete the work of providing final and complete purification in the life of believers. So we have seen that Jesus' work is greater than the work of the tabernacle. But notice second, in, chapter, or in verses 11 through 22, that Jesus' blood is greater than the blood of the animals. Jesus' blood is greater than the blood of the animals. Follow along with me in verse 11 to 22. It says, But when Christ appeared as, high priest, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Right, so we continue this story, right? And, and he starts switching kind of from this earthly holy place of the tent, the tabernacle, and now switching to Jesus. He uses that important word, but, when Christ appeared. Right, so this points us to a shift in the story, right? When Jesus appears, everything changes. God's plan is now visible. And look at it. He says, hey, he's a high priest of the good things that have come. Well, the author doesn't make us wait to figure out what these good things are, because in verse 12, he tells us it's eternal redemption. But look at first, he says, he entered through the greater and more perfect tent. What is this referring to, right? He says, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Well, this is heaven itself, right? The place where God himself dwells eternally. Paul gives us a glimpse into that in 2 Corinthians 5.1. He says, For if we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And that's, that's a good thing for us. And notice the good news, though, in verse 12. It says that Jesus entered once into the holy places. Also, because Jesus is the great high priest, he can enter into the most holy place. As verse 7 reminds us, the high priest right, had to enter the most holy place on the day of atonement with the blood of a perfect sacrifice. But notice what kind of blood Jesus enters with here. He doesn't use the blood of animals. He shed his own blood. Jesus' death on the cross was the way that God used to provide the once and for all entrance into the most holy place. Hebrews 13.12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So Jesus had to only enter once, and he accomplished what the high priest in the Old Testament could not complete year after year after year. Right, the, first, the high priest first had to present themselves and make sure their sins were confessed and their sins were taken care of. And then they could enter in again and take care of the sins of the people. But Jesus didn't have to do that. Right? He, he was sinless. He was perfect. Hebrews 7.27 He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, 
first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. All right, so the, the Old Testament priests, they were doing what they were called to do, right? They helped secure a temporary purification for the flesh. But Jesus secured eternal redemption. Hebrews 5.9, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So we already see the difference in what Jesus has accomplished. Look at verses 13 and 14. We see here that the writer of Hebrews now begins to compare the blood of goats and bulls to the blood of Jesus. He understands that if the blood of animals can bring about this purification of the flesh, well, how much more will the blood of Jesus accomplish? Notice here, though, that the author is not saying that the blood of animals actually can take away sins. Again, Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. One scholar wrote about this particular point. He said, The sin offerings serve merely, in an, merely as an external and symbolic manner to counteract the defilement of sin. Right? It was always temporary. It was never going to fully satisfy sin. But look what it says. The blood of Jesus. Right? We have eternal redemption through the blood of Jesus. Right? That is very countercultural. That is, that is very, we, have a lot of, we have a few corpsmen in this room. Like we know that blood is typically not a good thing. When it's a massive amount that is lost, that equals death. Right? Not in this sense. Yes, we see that Jesus does die, but eventually he is resurrected. Right? So the blood of Jesus brings about eternal redemption. Colossians 1.14 tells us what we have in Jesus in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Right, so the shedding of the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Hebrews 10.10, And by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Look at what it says in verse 14. It says, Who through the eternal Spirit offered himself. Jesus wasn't forced to do this. Right, unlike the sheep or the goat or the bull in the Old Testament that didn't have a clue what was about to happen right when they were about to be sacrificed, Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen when he went to the cross. Ephesians 5.2, Paul says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But even Jesus himself said that in the Gospel of John, right? In verse 10 or chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes it from me, talking about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So this is important for us to understand, right? Jesus did this on his own. He wasn't forced, he wasn't punished, he wasn't given a timeout, and he had to go get crucified. No, Jesus did this on his own. And look at what verse 15 Again, an important truth for us to understand that Christ is the mediator between God and man. Right? So what we see here is that he served as the sacrifice for our sins. Everyone in this room, every person who's ever lived, should have been crucified on a cross to pay the penalty of sin. But because God chose to use Jesus, he stepped in in our place. His death was the payment for sin. Hebrews 8.6 in the New Living Translation says it this way, But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior, superior 
to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. So Jesus' death and resurrection have secured redemption for all who place faith in him. And look how he ends verse 15. He talks about this idea of the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Well, what is he getting at here? How does the blood of Jesus cover the sins of those who lived under the first covenant or the old covenant? simple way, to, I think, to explain this is from a former pastor, excuse me, Herschel Hobbs. He explained it this way. He said, those who were saved under the old covenant were saved through faith looking forward to the cross. They who in faith regarded the sacrifices as pointing to a greater work of God. They saw not merely the death of animals, but for somehow, but somehow in God's own way, death of the substitute sufficed for them. That's kind of where you see that. It was credited to him as righteousness with Abraham and a lot of the heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. And in verse 16, we, we see this, this idea of a will that is involved. Right, so this it does have somewhat of the connotation we think of when we hear the word will, but it's more of the sense of the covenant. But just like a will today, it, it doesn't go into effect until the person dies, right? Upon the death of the person who has the will, all the benefits of the deceased are activated. But the good news for us is that, yes, Jesus died, but he's not dead. We still get the benefits of everything that the will would entail, right? We receive all the inheritance promised to us. He established a new covenant with his people. Look at verse 18. It reminds us again, the author says, hey, make sure you understand that that first covenant was inaugurated with blood, right? Without blood. It wasn't not, so therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So again, he's making sure we understand this concept of the blood. In verses 19 through 20, we really see here this example of going back to the Old Testament in Exodus 24, where Moses is obedient to what God has called him to do, and he purifies and sprinkles the book of the law and the people to confirm the covenant. And Jesus, even in uh, the, the Last Supper, right? He, he talks about the blood of the covenant. Matthew 26, 28 says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So even in that last moment with his disciples, and what we celebrate here at the table, is it's the blood of the covenant, right? It's, it's not just some grape juice that's great and tasty. It's symbolizing the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And look at verse 22. There's an interesting phrase here. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Well, what does that mean? Why would he say that? Well, he's really talking about those Israelites back in the day who, who could not afford to have an animal to sacrifice. It's simply uh, presenting a, 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 sorry, an offering of flour, which would, would suffice for them in that time. So as we think through this, right, that the, the author here is reminding us that we, there is no forgiveness of sins without shedding of blood in verse 22. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the life, or by the life. And another beautiful passage, Romans 5.8 and 9, right? God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Praise be to God that the blood of Jesus has opened the way into the most holy place. The blood of Jesus has given us eternal redemption. The blood of Jesus has brought us forgiveness from our sins. In church, we must live in the light of that. If this doesn't make you want to worship and rejoice, what will? Remember the veil in verse 3, right? We, we talked about that. Well, Jesus entered the veil, beyond the veil, and opened the way for all who believed in him. Scholars think that the veil in the temple at the time of the crucifixion was anywhere, it was a roughly about a 60 foot long, 30 foot high, and up to four inches thick piece of tapestry. Right? Not some thin shower curtain that you buy at Walmart. This was some big deal. And listen to what Mark 15.38 says. It says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The, ter- the veil was torn from top to bottom. Right? It's almost like trying to rip open a phone book right, in half like you see. So this means that only God himself could tore that veil. Not any human, not any priest. The blood of Jesus gave us access to the Father what was lost in the garden. The blood of Jesus was and always is greater than the blood of animals. So We've already seen two beautiful truths from the author about Jesus. First, we saw that Jesus' work is greater than the work of the tabernacle. And we just saw that Jesus' blood is greater than the blood of the animals. Now we turn to our third and final truth in the last section of verses that Jesus' sacrifice is greater than the sacrifice of the high priest. Jesus' sacrifice is greater than the sacrifice of the high priest. Follow along with me starting in verse 23 to the end of the chapter. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the author here continues talking about the earthly tent needing to be purified with sacrifices. But he also makes a point that the heavenly places need better sacrifices. Well, what does he mean? One scholar explains it this way. It's simple to understand. The heavenly tabernacle had to be cleansed because of the sins of the people who would be brought into the covenant. The the heavenly tabernacle is cleansed in conjunction with the cleansing of God's people. And to explain it even more, he, he talks about it in verse 24. That Jesus is not entering into the earthly tabernacle, but entering heaven himself. And although he is sinless, the people were not and needed to be cleansed from their sins. Hebrews itself describes this better than I can. 
Hebrews 9.12, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he is always he always lives to make intercession for them. So as we see here in verse 24, right, he is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. So right now, in this exact moment, Jesus is interceding before the Heavenly Father on our behalf. Right? We, if you are in Christ, you have been declared righteous before a holy God. In that moment of salvation, you have been justified. You have been declared righteous by a holy God because of the blood of Jesus. Nothing you can do, nothing I can do. God is interceding on our behalf. And look at verse 25. It says here, right, that the, the high priest would have to go year after year to do this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Right? It was a perpetual task for every high priest. The next high priest would have to do it. The next high priest would have to do it. The next high priest, so on. But Jesus only did it once. He didn't have to do it again. Right? His blood fully satisfied the penalty of sin and brought about eternal redemption. Notice it didn't say you just put away sin until the next year, revisit it, right? New Year's resolution for Jesus. All right, let me forgive the sins again. No, he did it one time forever. Right? The shedding of the blood of Jesus brings the removal of sin. From the beginning of time, God had a plan to take away sin. Right? Even in the Garden of Eden, God gave them a promise of what was to come in Genesis 3.15. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the moment of the fall, God had a plan of redemption already. It wasn't this afterthought like, oh, I've got to figure out something. No, God had a plan from that moment forward. And so from the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God had a plan of redemption. And all through the Bible, we see this redemptive thread of Jesus that leads to the cross. It's always, always leading to the cross. And notice what he says in verse 27. He says, Just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Right? So we know that every person here right, will face judgment and will face death at some point. And even from the moment sin came into the garden, they faced that choice too, right? Eventually, Adam and Eve faced physical death. They lived a lot longer. But God even said that in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But verse 28 gives us good news, right? It says here that Jesus, having offered once to bear the sins of many, and everybody in this room is a many. He has borne the sins of many. This alludes to what the author was reaching back to Isaiah 53, where it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And notice here it says again that he will appear second time. And that hasn't happened yet. But one day Jesus will return in all his glory and he will, we will be able to see him face to face, right? Those who have trusted in him, our faith will be made sight. 
He is coming back to redeem his bride. He is coming back to take the bride of Christ to the place he has been preparing since his ascension. A former pastor by the name of R.C.H. Linsky writes some great commentaries. He has this, he summarizes this uh, section of verses with these words, and I thought it was just beautiful to share. It says, The idea of Christ ever repeating his sacrifice is absolutely excluded by the incomparable nature of the blood which he has shed for us. Yes, he shall be seen here on earth once more, but only as the glorious giver of the eternal salvation which the one shedding of his blood obtained for us. So over the thousands and thousands of years that the law, since the law was given to Moses, millions of sacrifices were made by the priest and high priest. Year after year, the same process would occur. But however, Jesus, when he came, only had to enter the veil once and offer himself up once. The sacrifice of his own blood was greater than all the blood that all the high priests ever existed sacrificed. His blood brought eternal redemption. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right? we, we know that God drove them out of the garden and put angels to protect them from entering back in. And from that moment on, we humans, mankind, were never fully able to get back truly into the presence of God because of their sin. I love how the, this children's book that we recently purchased in Peru is called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. actually describes this journey after Adam and Eve were kicked out. Sorry, I don't have pictures, but hold on with me. The book writes this way says, to show the people they had to stay outside, God put some warrior angels in front of the garden. The angels were like a big keep-out sign, so no one could come into God's wonderful place. God said, because of your sin, you can't come in. God told the people to build a special building called his temple, where he would live. In the middle of the temple was the most, be- most wonderful place in the world, the place where God was, with nothing bad and nothing sad. And for hundreds of years, the temple curtain reminded people that God had said, it is wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. On the cross, Jesus took our sin. All the bad things we do and all the sad things they cause, Jesus took them all from us. And when he died, something amazing happened. The curtain tore. God had ripped up the keep out sign. God's wonderful place is open again. Because Jesus died, we can go in. And Jesus has sent everyone an invitation to come and live with him. He tells us, God says it's wonderful to live with him. Because of your sin, you can't come in. But I died on the cross to take your sin. Church, we need to rejoice in the fact that Jesus' shed blood brings us eternal redemption. Rest in the fact that your sins are paid for. You don't need to go year after year and ask for redemption. Praise God that the veil has been fully torn and that we have access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We don't have to have some human priest or some human mediator to go to God. We go to God directly because of the blood of Jesus. So I would encourage you how to apply this. Well, take time. Go back and read the Old Testament parts we've talked about and understand the gravity of what they were called to do, what the priests were called to do, what the whole 
sacrifice looks like. I don't have the time. We could be here hours to walk through each of those passages. But go, you need to understand the significance of what that looked like and how it never could fully satisfy sin. But don't stop there. Go and read what Jesus did for us, right? All it was was him dying on the cross, saying it is finished and shedding his blood for us. That is all it took. Don't take that lightly, but it's all it took for us to have presence with the Lord. And if, if that's not something you've ever done, if you've never ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, please, why not? Today is the day of salvation. Come talk with me, one of our pastors here. We can show you simply repenting of your sins, placing your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and his shed blood. In the presence of God, you can enter into one day. Pray with me.